Well, it's great to see you all here. I don't know how many of you saw the um, subject for tonight, um, but on our mailing list, we put out the subject, and it is um, usually the, the day before or the morning of. Um, and um, one of the things I've been contemplating, especially around the new year, has to do with the spiritual path. Um, why engage in a spiritual path? And... Um, and how hard should this life be? Like, life doesn't come with a manual. You know, you don't graduate from high school or college and then someone gives you this manual. And in this manual it says, you know, here's how things work. If you do this, chapter one, relationships. This is how it'll work out well. Chapter two, finances. If you do this, here's how it'll work out well. Chapter three, social engagement. Here's how things will work out well. Chapter, you know, all these different chapters for, you know, personal development and, you know, and um, all the, you know, goals and then how I should sleep, how I should eat, um, what's good for my central nervous system, how I should spend my time. You know, you don't get this manual that, you know, you can just look up everything. You, you kind of have to get in there and figure it out and see, um, wow what works and what doesn't work. And um, I don't know if any of you are in this phase of your, your life right now. Maybe some of you are. I definitely have had phases of my life before where I would say that not much was working. And it was like, yeah, I could really use a manual. Like, not much is working. Everything seems hard. And I feel like I keep um, shooting myself in the foot. And most of my best guesses are the wrong ones. And um, when is this going to stop? You know, life is just hard, and I think I'm making it harder than it has to be. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way before. But um, I think that along the, the, the way, what you want is you want at some point in time to say, I think things are working out pretty well. Not that you've solved everything. But what does it mean? Things are working out pretty well. Like, what is the expectation for a life? Like, if you come here and you sit meditation and you practice some Zen principles at home and you do this for the next 10 years, um, like, how easy will life be? Like, will it get to this place where it's just like super easy and I get out of bed in the morning and it's just autopilot and I'm just like, I rock. The world rocks. Everything rocks. This is great. <laughs> Let's just keep going, you know. Give me another day. You know, how, how, what, what, what will this mean? I'll never forget this story about this monk named Tatsugami Roshi who was at our off-the-grid monastery down south called Tasahara. And he had been the Eno in the past of Eheji Monastery in Japan, which is the chief temple of Soto Zen pretty much in the world. And um, he had been a practicing monk for over 30 years, a very knowledgeable uh, guy. Who knows how many, he definitely had his 10,000 hours of, you know, zazen in. And, um, and he, he left the, the, the door of the meditation hall one time, and he just yelled, I hate zazen! And, like, people were just shocked, like, what? You know? This is a person that's probably been sitting for 35, 40 years. They, I mean, at some point, like, you know, uh, how could you possibly say that, you know? 
who knows what Tatsugami Roshi was sitting with that day? You know, what had happened in his life. And the, the process of sitting Zazen is sitting with whatever comes up. Whatever's coming from that, the recesses of your mind, from your body, from whatever's happening around you. Um, it's sitting with what's happening right now. And you only have so much control over the universe. In fact, the older I get, the less control I think I have over the universe. And how, how I'm sitting in Zazen is many ways, from my experience, like an archaeological did. And the first, you know, three to five years that I was sitting, there were certain things that I was sitting with that I uncover about myself or about my mind or about my motivations or about my concepts or about what have you, my realizations. And then, you know, it's like, oh, hmm, yeah, that's, that's disturbing, you know. And somehow or another, after more time of sitting, the thing that was like disturbing a few years ago isn't so disturbing anymore, and I'm a few layers down on the archaeological dig. And then I come across something new. I'm like, oh, wow, I wouldn't have even seen this skeleton back whenever I first started to sit. And then I'm now sitting with that. But like a, a cityscape that has some buildings in it, the best way I can describe it from my, my experience is that let's say you've got a cityscape and your cityscape has four buildings in it. You know, let's say you're 15 years old and, you know, you've got a few strengths and a few weaknesses and you've got a couple buildings that you don't like so much, you know, and they kind of dominate the cityscape from your psyche's standpoint. You got a few other buildings that are some strengths of yours and you kind of like how they look in the, the cityscape, you know. Um, but as you get older, you start to have other buildings. You start to have other growths. Other things pop up. Like, if you think about stuff that bothers you when you're 10, a lot of that stuff probably still doesn't bother you nearly as much. Um, go back to, like, when you're 5, you know, how maybe some other kid could ride a bike and you couldn't ride a bike yet, or somebody was good, better at math, or people liked that one kid and they didn't want to hang around you, or just the... You know, so the intensity that we feel about some of these things, we get better at navigating. And somehow or another, there's like this, this plateau that a lot of us come to called adult land. And we, we grow up so much to the point where we can kind of, um, you know, keep people away from noticing all the areas where we feel insecure and small and worried and anxious. And we develop a personality and always keep people away from all those things, you know. Um, but then at some point we kind of plateau. And the, the realization isn't that we can just keep growing. That if we, if we keep on that path, we can keep growing. And, and just like that cityscape that had four buildings and then all of a sudden has ten, um, it's not that the, the two buildings that maybe scared me when I was 15 get demolished. Typically what happens is they get integrated into a more robust skyline. And how I feel about things is just different. And it's held in a different way. Like that difficult person in your family. Or that difficult person in your house. Or in your community. Or that archetype in society. That just, 
You're just like, why do they have to exist? And that whatever that person is that kind of winds you up inside. And there's a certain capacity that you have to hold that. And if you're having a day where a lot of stuff that's already stressed you out has happened, there might not be room for you to take that person today. It just might be a little bit too much. But just like going to the gym, you know, that 10 pound weight that was a little bit much when you first started working out, five years down the road, it's still a five pound weight or it's still a 10 pound weight. It's still that person in your family. It's still that person, but somehow or another, the capacity has expanded. The capacity has expanded. And you might even gain awareness in how you're lifting the 10 pound weight. Like when you were first working out, you might not have realized that that was kind of straining the other side of your lower back as you were leaning in over here. You just thought it was straining your bicep. You didn't have an awareness in that archeological dig of all the pain it was actually causing you. You just noticed that it was hurting your bicep as you were trying to curl that 10 pound weight. And then you start to realize, oh, I'm doing this actually quite unbalanced. And the, the reason that the opposite side of my lower back hurts when I do this is because I'm not actually using my core. And you have an awareness in your archaeological dig. Oh, yeah, maybe I need to actually engage my core and sit up straight. And then you start to notice all these other little things that are going on. And, and, and you didn't even notice how you were straining yourself initially. You were just straining your bicep. And you might have a reaction to a friend or to a person in your family or to a person in, that you work with. And without it being an examined relationship or without walking down a spiritual path and doing a lot of inner work, you might just feel like, that person makes me angry. You know, that person makes me angry. Or, you know, I feel that that person is X, whatever they are clueless, unaware, mean, you know. So that might be where it's... But then maybe over time, you're just like, wow, I project a lot onto that person. And I don't know them that well. And they might be a little bit clueless, but they also really remind me of this other person in my past that really bothers me. And you start to see the nuances of how you maybe are how I maybe am helping to create this chemistry experiment between me and this other person. And so it gets more nuanced and there's more little buildings in your cityscape that start to pop up. And emotions start to become more nuanced as well, where it's like, well, yeah, it's angry, but it's weirdly angry hopeful. <laughs> or it's, it's angry and then a little bit of despair, but I've got a lot of like optimism in there somewhere, like this can be solved. Like, you know, the things start to actually, uh, you start to notice that there's more nuance to the emotional topography of what's going on. It's not just the black and white, oh, that makes me angry. That there's actually more nuance going on there. And so I'm not certain what Tatsugami Roshi was working with that day. But I will bet you that it was way more nuanced than it was his first year of sitting. That he was seeing something that was, 
yeah, probably multifaceted. And it was fairly upsetting to him. And this is the hopeful thing about having a practice or a spiritual practice or a meditation practice is that it's an examined life that you start to examine it. And the more you examine it, the more you start to understand little clues as to how it's put together. And the more you examine it, the less fear there is about this might be too much. I talk oftentimes about the, the analogy of the, the monster under the bed, but I swear 5,000 years ago, I bet you there were still kids who thought there was a monster under the bed. I bet this has been going on as long as there's been human beings, you know, where, and, and based on folklore, it, it seems like this is true. But, you know, the, the scary thing in life is when you're three and you think there's a monster under the bed or in the closet. And if you stay there and you just pull the covers up higher over your head and you keep thinking about every single little creak and every single little noise in your room is probably further evidence that there is a monster under the bed, your imagination will come up with all sorts of things. But if you have the courage to get out of your bed and uh, run across the room and turn on the light and maybe even grab a flashlight and then go and look under your bed and just stare straight at all of the dust particles and whatever, and you start to see, wow, yeah, okay, I made it through tonight. Maybe tomorrow night there will be a monster but maybe I scared the monsters away. And that bit of courage of just, just having the courage to look, having the courage to look, it does something in the human psyche. And I don't know if this is true, but this is my story. A long time ago, around the time of the Buddha, someone was like, you know, when we look at our stuff, remember when we were three and I thought that there was a monster around the corner? Every time I went and had the courage to look, it always seemed to make things a little better. I just had the courage to look and to see, you know? What if we just learned to sit with our own stuff in our heads that same way, as opposed to the external monsters? What if we learned to sit that way with the internal monsters? And someone says, hmm, that's a pretty good idea. We'll see how long this lasts. And so here we are, 2,500 years later. But having the courage in Zazen, when you sit, to just let whatever's coming forward, come forward. And to not have to do anything about it, but the discomfort, or the judgment, or the worry, or the thing you're going to have to do tomorrow, or the upsetting thing that happened in the past? And what if we don't have to own it? Like I was saying with the Zazen instruction, the stuff that comes in when we're sitting Zazen, you just let come in. And then you don't own it. You don't judge it. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just a car horn. It's just a memory of a meeting. It's just a projection that I'm gonna get a sandwich later. Whatever it is. 
And you just learn to not own it. You just learn to let it come. And then I don't have to do anything with it. But I look at it. And I look at it the way that you would look at it if you were a curious scientist or a curious artist watching a creation unfold. And you just look at it without analysis, without quantification, without putting it in a box, without calling it good or bad. Like when you look at the, the full moon on a beautiful night and you just take in the beauty of the moon. You don't say to yourself in your native language, Michael, I like that moon, and it makes me feel good because the contrast of the circle against the dark, and I bet that this reflect. And you're not there and analyzing your emotion. You just kind of go, oh. You just—it's just pure experience, you and moon. Pure experience, you and moon. And can we learn to sit that way with what comes forward when we're sitting meditation? Just pure experience the feeling of what it is when that person said that thing in that meeting yesterday, without having to analyze that person or their mother or whatever, just, huh. Noticing the body sensation without analyzing the body sensation. Just noticing. There's all sorts of things that you can do outside of language. And the reason it's outside of language is that we're trying to get back to pure experience when we sit meditation. So we aren't actually giving ourselves um, language instruction in our head. And once you learn how to set the body up and you learn all the parameters of zazen, then you just kind of do it. But you don't go into language. You just sit. And I don't know if you're like me, but I like to quantify things and to see how much I've grown spiritually, you know, based on like my zazen. How can I put a finger on how much I've grown between now and last year? Like, do I get to 10 each time when I'm breathing and counting? Because eventually you quit counting numbers and you just breathe. And, um, but then did I, did I wander off into the weeds a lot this morning? Did I wander off into the weeds less than I did last year at this time? You know, I'm, I'm always like looking for some sort of improvement metric. And that's why I gravitated toward Zen. Because Zen actually takes away most of the things to hold on to. So that you can't actually measure it. And it actually encourages you not to measure it. Now, you can journal, you know, sometimes about how you feel you're doing or whatever. But when you're sitting Zazen, see if you can just let yourself be in pure experience just actually being with what's happening right now and having the courage because oftentimes especially if you've got like a good analytical brain you can learn to actually protect yourselves from the world by constantly putting a sticket note on everything you know you're constantly analyzing everything and putting it in a category and knowing what it is and then telling yourself that you know what it is and then grouping them and it's like no what if you got to live without the protection of your analytical brain and you just actually got to live with your emotions and how you feel about stuff and how it's hitting you and where you're holding it in your body. And you got to know yourself in a pure experience way. What would that be like to just sit 
and to be with the experience and to learn how to get out of the head and the analysis and to get into the experience of the moment. And that's the invitation of the spiritual path is to start with getting to know yourself from how you actually appear in the universe without all of your ideas about how you appear in the universe. Stepping outside of your ideas of yourself. I don't even know if you've ever heard this um, um, exercise, but you write down everything that you're certain of. It's called the, you know, you start with 100%. Everything I'm certain of by 100%. I'm 100% sure of this. And you, you, you just write, you, you write down as many things as you can until you start getting to the place where you're like, I'm 99% sure about that one, you know. And then you start, you start to like see your assurities, you know. What I've learned is that the longer I sit, the, the more things come out of that 100% category and get into, hmm, yeah, maybe, maybe that's not the whole picture. Maybe there's more, there's more to this, you know. Because um, stepping outside of the pure experience, stepping outside of analysis, it lets you get into a place where um, you realize how many other ways there are to potentially feel, see, and experience a moment that you don't want to put too many expectations on how things will necessarily be. It's like if somebody right now showed you a tool belt from the 24th century, and they just showed you one little tiny, like, amazing tool, you know, and then they took it away, and you're just like, oh, wow, there's, like, a lot of stuff that's possible out there. You know, it's like, I, I never would have ever dreamed that up, you know. And that is what the spiritual path is often like, is that the mind and body that you could inhabit in the future is impossible for you to describe to yourself right now with your current mind and body. So you have to just jump in and work with experience and let yourself evolve into your future self. And do things get easier? They do get easier from my experience to be a human being on this planet. And the things that you end up handling and being up for handling get bigger. Just like in the weight room, you might even go over and pick up the 25-pound weight. And you never would have even considered that when you first started working out. You might not have even been able to see that there was a 25-pound weight when you first started working out. I do think that the thing that the spiritual path teaches is that struggle is necessary and that you can learn to love to struggle. And that the way that it's held in your mind and body morphs and expands in a way that feels spacious and way more possible. But it's like if you're trying to describe something that you find really complex in your life to your five-year-old self. It's very difficult to do. Because you just look at that five-year-old and you just know that they're going to have to grow into the capacity to understand that. 
you're not going to be able to explain it. It's outside of words. And that's why with the spiritual path, we do so many things like meditation where we try to step outside of words and get back to experience so that we can let things unfold organically that we never could have project planned with our brains. And from this, you get to know yourself. And maybe even, you know, five years from now, 15 years from now, you'll be in a situation where you leave a meditation hall and you yell, I hate Zazen. And you still might be having a really great day. <laughs>